pastor here at Element Church and just want to welcome you. And want to welcome you to week three of our four-part series entitled Word, where we're taking a look at the Word of God, um, taking a look at the Bible and answering some really, really big questions that I know all of us either currently wrestle with or all of us at some point have wrestled with. And um, we have uh, tried to do our best to answer some of the questions that, that, that the world is asking of us. And, and accusations that the world is making of us uh, when it comes to this book. And so week one um, was entitled, Believing the Word of God. And so we really uh, took a look at uh, the idea that we call this the Word of God. We said that, you know, the Bible, we call it the Bible, and that's a name. That's a name that we give to this book. We also call it the Scriptures, and that's a title uh, that we give to this book that infers some um, sort of authority and meaning, but we also call it the Word of God, and that is quite an audacious claim. And so week one, we spent our time looking at um, what it means that this be the actual, literal words of God and what that means for our lives. Last week, we tried to answer the question, where did the Bible come from? How in the world did it go from God's lips to my hands? H- how, how did the process happen that that men started to write down the words of God. And is that even a thing you can do? Is it even okay to write down God's words and, and claim that those written words are His words? And so we looked at where the Bible comes from and the process that it went through uh, of being written. But what we also did, and we spent some time in history last week, uh, looking at how the Bible went from its original writing into our hands today. And we talked about the process that that, that went through. We, we mentioned a lot of names of, of men who gave their lives so that we could hold the Bible in our hands, so that we could hold God's Word, so that we could have access to it in our daily lives. And we, we looked at manuscripts, or at least some facts about manuscripts. How, how can we know that Maybe, maybe originally it was God's word, but how do I know that it hasn't been changed? How do I know that it hasn't been corrupted? And so we took a look at that last week, trying to answer the question, where did the Bible come from? And then this week, we're taking a look at what really is the Bible? What's in it? What, what is it about? So we've talked big picture around the Bible. Is it okay to call it God's word? And how did, how did God's word go uh, from from his mouth, his lips, to my hands. But now we're going to really dive into it and, and start answering some of the questions. What's in it? And what should I expect to find in it? And what does it all really kind of mean? And so that's what we're going to tackle this morning. Now here's what I want to say. If you missed one or two of the first weeks, and some of those topics may be of interest to you. Maybe you wrestle with, how could I know that's really God's word? Or maybe you wrestle with, how do I know that somebody hasn't changed this or corrupted this to fit their own agenda? Uh, my encouragement w- to you would be to go to our church website, which is yourelement.org, and all of our sermons are recorded and available for you there. Also, like in the first week, I gave you a handout um, to look at and work through. Um, you can download that handout. Last week, we had a chart. If you remember, if you were here last week of manuscripts and, and all those things, you can download that chart uh, if you want to look at that for yourself. Um, and so I'm not into self-promotion, but I want you to know that those resources are available for you on our website. And within, hopefully, this week, as soon as iTunes gets back to me, um, you'll be able to download these messages uh, through a podcast, and I'll let you know when those are available. So let me do this. Let me pray for myself and for you, and then we'll really dive in to what we have today. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you that we have the blessing of not only um, holding your word, but that you give your spirit so that we can understand it. So that though sin has blinded us, you've opened our eyes through your grace that comes by faith in Jesus. And and we, we ask that you would Uh, open our minds and our hearts to see your word for what it really is to understand what's in it and for it to come alive come alive inside of us lord thank you for all that you're doing all that you're speaking to us pray this in your name amen so the bible as we've mentioned several times was written in three languages most of the old testament was written in hebrew with a little bit of aramaic and the new testament was written in greek 
Now, today, you can get the Bible in over 3,000 languages. It's been translated into over 3,000 languages. And translators are working furiously to, to translate the Bible into the, the remaining languages that don't yet have uh, their own version of the Scriptures, their own copy of, a, of the Bible. Uh, now, depending on how old you are and how our, your health and my health go, um, but I've, I have full expectations that within my lifetime, um, every language in existence uh, in the world will have the Bible um, written and, and printed in, in their own language. As a matter of fact, I have a good friend uh, from high school, her and her husband, have just moved to Papua New Guinea um, and are working with a tribe that has no written language. And so they're there living, they'll be living there for um, five to seven years just to learn the language. Then they will put that language into an alphabet, create an alphabet system for this tribe, then begin the process of translating the Bible into their language. In places like Papua New Guinea, I mean, there are over 500 tribes that that have no written language, just in Papua New Guinea alone. Um, and and that, that's an unusual place because almost every village there is a different tribe with a different language. And so even though a village may be just 10 miles apart, just a day's walk, they may speak two completely different languages, and both of them don't have any written, uh, written language. But that's changing, and translators are working furiously at making sure that that's remedied. This is, uh, the Bible is 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. But really, and as we'll see today, it's just one book. There are roughly 40 authors, but as we've talked about over the last two weeks, there's really just one author, that being God. Uh, the Bible was originally written on basically two different things. Aside from the Ten Commandments, which we read last week, that were uh, etched in stone. Uh, the Bible was originally written on two things. One is called parchment, and another is called papyrus. Parchment is made prepared from animal skins. And papyrus is much easier and cheaper to make, but also doesn't last longer. Papyrus is uh, basically plants that have been mashed down, rolled out, and dried. If you want to know more about the process, you'll have to Google it because that's as much as I know. All right, but I do know parchment lasts a lot longer, but papyrus is much easier and cheaper to make. And so a lot of our New Testament documents especially were written on papyrus. And uh, what, why they did survive, those that did, is because of the dry climate uh, in the Middle East where a lot of these were written and then preserved. And so the dry climate has helped us a lot. So here's what I want us to do. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to the very beginning. And I mean even before the beginning. So I want you to open up to the beginning material. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Or if you've got your phone or tablet, you can open that up. And I want you to open up to the table of contents. Because I want to talk a little bit about what you're looking at when you look at the table of contents. Because there may be some things about it that you don't realize. Um, one of the things that many people don't realize, or at least until you really start diving in, is the Bible, the books of the Bible are not in chronological order. Okay? Now, Genesis is the first book and it deals with the beginning. Revelation is a, the last book and it deals with the end. But in between there, some of them are in chronological order, some of them are not. And so if you were to just open up the Bible... And start reading in Genesis, that's a great place to start. But eventually you start getting uh, into uh, different genres of literature that are not in chronological order. And the Bible is organized all right, by literary type or genre. So it's just like a library. When you go to a library, you don't walk in and find books that are in order of when they were written. Right? Like... You would never be able to find anything unless you knew exactly the moment, the date it was written. Um, now, so when you walk into a library, you understand that there's, there's a structure to it. You have different sections. So you have a reference section. You have nonfiction. You have fiction, right? So you have different sections, or you could even think of it, maybe even more accurately, would be like a bookstore, right? You go to a bookstore, you have a poetry section, Go to a, another part of the bookstore, you have a history section. You go to another part of 
a bookstore and you have the social sciences and you have philosophy. You go to another part and there's your fiction. Then you go, so it's organized like a bookstore by genre type. And if you don't know that, then when you start reading the Bible, it can make things quite confusing. So I want you to look at your table of contents. If you have your own Bible open in front of you, I'd encourage you to grab a pen, should be in the seat back in front of you, and, and do something for me. And, and this will help a little bit. If, I want you to draw a line between the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. And it's okay to write in your Bible. It's not a sin. So draw a line between Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, excuse me, Deuteronomy and Joshua. I want you to draw a line between Esther and Job. I want you to draw a line between Song of Solomon, or yours may say Song of Songs, depending on what version you have, and Isaiah. I want you to draw a line between Daniel and Hosea. And I'll, of course, explain why we're doing this. Now we're going to jump down to the New Testament. I want you to draw a line between John and Acts. I want you to draw a line between Acts and Romans. And then draw a line right there at the very end of the New Testament between Jude and Revelation. These are your major different literary genres that your Bible is organized into. And so what I want us to do just for a minute is is kind of talk about these different genres and how they play into each other. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the big picture of the Bible. How do we have 66 books by roughly 40 authors written over a period of 1,500 years, yet it's still just one big story? And we're going to take a look at that in a minute. So this first section, I had you draw a line between Deuteronomy and Joshua. Those first five books are what we call law. Okay? So you can write that out next to it. You can write law. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, how the first five books of the Bible carry a special name throughout the scriptures that it'll be referred to as the Pentateuch. Um, you'll see the, or and when you're reading, you'll see it referred to the law of Moses or the book of the law or just the law. And if it's, mention, if it's referencing these first five books, it'll always have a capital L, law. And that's how you know the author is referencing these first five books because they'll use a capital L for the law. This uh, covers... Um, A lot of the foundational um, history and understanding of how God's people get their start and and really draws us a very big picture for how to understand the world, how to understand God in relation to the world, and how to understand um, God as he's pursuing us in this world. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. The next section from Joshua down to Esther is what we call history. Um, And these obviously are more than just history um, because they're meant to just, they're meant to teach us principles so that we can understand who God is, how he works, understand ourselves as human beings a little bit better. So it's not just dry history giving you just a list of facts and dates and events, although um, that is kind of the big overarching theme of these books is history and gives us an understanding of how we um, got where we are. How do we go from God creating the world to you have a people in the Middle Eastern Mediterranean part of the world that God is doing something special in and through them? And kind of gives us a framework for understanding that. The next section is what we would call, there's a couple different names that you'll hear it. Um, a lot of times you'll hear it referred to as the writings. But basically, it's poetry and wisdom. This section is poetry and wisdom literature. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, too. So all the next 17 books in the Old Testament are considered prophets. Now, why I had you draw a line between Daniel and Hosea is this. Those first five are what we call major prophets, and the next 12 are minor prophets. Now, major and minor has nothing to do with significance, all right? It is not like baseball where you got the major leagues and the minor leagues. That is not it, okay? Minor just means smaller, 
The major prophets, their books are bigger. That's, that's the only reason. And even within the prophets, you're not in chronological order there. And so you see that we have these, these blocks of books that are put together by type and size. And that helps us to understand as we're reading. And we'll talk a little bit about how they play into each other in, in just a moment. And then let's jump down to the New Testament. Those first four books, if you have much of a history in church, this won't be a surprise to you, are called Gospels. Where we get that is the term Gospel, and it's original Greek, the word that we translate into Gospel literally meant good news. <clears throat> this word was not unique or exclusive to the Bible. Um, it, the Greek word is euangelion, and it was something that uh, was a big pronouncement. So like, if, if your city, if your nation, just went out and fought a battle, and they were victorious, of course, back in these days, the king went with his army to fight. They would send word back with a euangelion, a pro- proclamation of good news, to let you know that your army had won the battle. And so it was a proclamation of good news. And, and that's where we get our word gospel from and literally means the good news. It's a proclamation of the good news of Jesus. The next book, Acts, is kind of in its own little category here in the New Testament. And Acts is what we refer to as history. So this would be the history part of the New Testament. It's pretty short and it covers basically the history of the first church and the early church. And how Christianity went from a group of a few men and exploded to reaching to the ends of the earth in just one generation. And so a lot of times you'll hear Acts, you'll also hear it called Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the Apostles being that small group of men who it started with. If, if we were going to be honest, it's probably more accurate to say and call it the Acts of the Spirit. Because the whole theme of the book is how the Holy Spirit goes in and moves and changes the world. And how the apostles or the disciples just so happen to get to be a part of that. The next big section in the New Testament are letters. Or you'll hear them referred to as epistles. And there are a variety of authors here. Uh, Basically what you have is some leaders who are writing letters to either individuals or churches, giving them instructions on how to live this Christian life. And so as Christianity is exploding, you have all these people who have all these questions, and you've got some of the church leaders who are writing letters, helping people understand how to live their life. How do we follow Jesus in everyday life? And then this last one, Revelation, is... Uh, what we would call apocalyptic literature or, thi- or literature on the final things. But let me, let me say this. Here's what I think is more accurate in, in to understand uh, Revelation. And that would be to see it as images of judgment and hope. That Revelation is providing us images of the judgment that comes on individuals and nations and the world as a whole who fail to honor God with their lives but also images of hope for those that do. For those that do choose to honor God with their lives and to submit their lives to Him. And so it's a book of images to help us see um, how judgment and hope work themselves out as God's bringing the final things together. So that's a very basic rundown of the, the genres in your Bible. Let's talk big picture for a minute. So we see that there are different genres. They're not in chronological order. But I want us to see the big picture of Scripture today. I want us to see the big picture. And it begins in the beginning. It begins in the beginning. And Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the entire Bible, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. It sets the stage for us. 
the very first sentence in all of Scripture seeks to answer and confront the question that all of us wrestle with. How in the world did we get here? What is going on? What is life about? What is the purpose? Where do we come from? The big, big, big questions. And the Bible from the very first sentence is going to answer that for us. In the beginning, God. I mean, what a way to start a story. To start a story with nothing. But God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Just God. In the beginning, it was Him. And then everything that was made, was made. As we've been talking for the last three weeks about, we serve a God who speaks. And this is how it all begins. In the beginning, it was just Him. And God spoke. And the power of His words created everything. Setting the stage for our understanding of all of life. Not just Scripture, but of the whole world. And so we start to see a story develop that begins with God. And He is the foundation of everything we know, believe, and trust in. God, as a part of His creation process, creates man. Creates humanity. And what we find is very, very early in this giant story, in chapter 3 of Genesis, everything comes crumbling down. Because men, designed in the image of God, chose to worship ourselves rather than God. Now, we can go into all the details and the specifics of, you know, what kind of tree was it in the Garden of Eden? What kind of, what kind of tree did Adam and Eve try to eat out of? And where is the Garden of Eden? Where was it? How do we find it? And all. Here's what matters. Is that Adam and Eve represent us. And the same sin that they dealt with was passed on to us. And it's the same sin that we deal with every day is that we desire to elevate ourselves to the place of God. We don't want to worship God as God. We want to honor and worship ourselves as God. We want to be supreme in our own lives. We want to call the shots. And everything falls apart in Genesis chapter 3. And then all of a sudden we start seeing this recurring theme happen over and over and over again. We screw up. We decide that we're going to worship ourselves rather than our Creator. We'll worship creation rather than the one who made it all. God brings judgment, but then restoration. We see that in Cain and Abel. But God brings restoration. Then we we see it in the great flood. God brings judgment on the fact that everyone chose to worship themselves rather than God. But the story doesn't end with judgment. God brings restoration. We see it again over and over. Again, still, we're not even at chapter 11 yet. And you have the Tower of Babel. Again, men wanting to honor and worship themselves, elevate themselves to the place of God. And we see judgment by God, but it doesn't stop with judgment. We see hope. We see restoration. And then God begins a final restoration plan with a man named Abraham. And God tells Abraham that he's going to do something special with him. That through Abraham, he's going to create a nation. That God will bless this nation so that they can be a blessing to the world. God's going to reveal Himself to these people so that through these people, God can reveal Himself to the world. He's going to teach these people how to worship Him so that through them, the rest of the world can learn to worship God. And we see the final restoration plan start to take place. But even then, there's this Continual pattern of rebellion by the people, judgment by God, but God providing hope in and amidst 
our disobedience, and our rebellion. And so through this man, Abraham, he begins to have sons. And his grandson is named Jacob. And as he wrestles with God, again in the same battle of who's going to be ultimate in our life, and God wins the victory and God renames him Israel, which is where the nation of Israel gets their name. Israel has 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned so often in the Bible. And one of those sons named is Joseph. Joseph's kind of a brat, and he's the youngest of 12. So you can imagine what kind of relationship there is among all the brothers and Joseph. And in a fit of rage and jealousy, these older brothers sell Joseph into slavery because Joseph was their father's favorite, and they didn't like it. And so Joseph finds himself in Egypt. But despite the rebellion of this family line that is supposed to become this promised nation, despite their rebellion and failure to honor God's plan, God still works in and through it. So judgment comes in form of a famine, but like always, God doesn't stop at judgment. He brings a salvation plan. He brings a restoration plan. And through Joseph, Joseph rises up in the ranks of Egypt and one day is sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. And when the famine comes, Joseph's family comes to Egypt looking for food. And Joseph is there to care for his family, but also to preserve this nation of Israel that God had promised that through this nation, hope was going to come to the world. That through this nation, people would truly understand and see God. Through this nation, a way would be made so that people could worship God. Well, you fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years later. Joseph and his brothers, they ended up staying in Egypt. They grew and grew and grew in population. And so what was this small family grew into a nation. And one day, the Pharaoh of Egypt became fearful of these Israelites and put them under slavery out of fear that they could grow so large they could take over the kingdom. And so now the Israelites, this promised, this promised people of God, find themselves in utter despair and slavery. And they begin crying out for, for deliverance, crying out Calling out on God, don't you remember that you promised it would be our nation that would be elevated so that we could reach the world, so that we could show the world how good you are. If you're such a good God, how could you let your people be in slavery? And God leads his people out of slavery through a man named Moses and brings them on their journey towards a promised land. That God was going to give this nation their own land to settle so they could set up base camp, start growing as a nation, and start blessing all the ends of the earth. But again, we see this pattern. The people, though they should have been thankful for the promise they were given and the freedom that God provided as they came out of slavery, rebel. And the people rebel and God says, you'll stay in the wilderness until the next generation comes up. And then I'll lead this next generation into the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. And as Moses dies and a new leader raises up named Joshua, he leads this promised people into the promised land. And for a little while, things go well. They take the land as their possession. They divide up the land into 12 regions to represent the 12 tribes, to represent the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. And so there they are in the promised land. But what do we see? Another pattern of the people rebelling against God. This is a time period known as the Judges. There's even a book devoted to this time period when judges ruled over the land. These judges made decisions on God's behalf for His people. And what we see over and over and over in the book of Judges 
is that it says that people did as they saw fit. No one wanted to honor God. No one wanted to live according to how He had set the standard. Nobody was interested in receiving God's blessings so that they could then pass it on to the rest of the world like they were created to do. They wanted to take God's blessings and keep them. They wanted to use them for themselves. Eventually, the people decided they wanted a king. God said, no, I'm your king. You're my people. Let me lead you. I'm your protector. Don't you remember when you were in Egypt? I led you out. Don't you remember when you came into the promised land and people tried to conquer you? I took care of you. I defeated your enemies. You let me be king. But again, we see another pattern. The people rebel. God tells the people, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. But I promise you, you're not going to like what you're asking for. So God gives them a king. A great man that anyone would want as king. His name was Saul. And now we enter into a period in the, in the Bible known as First and Second Samuel. Samuel is the last of these judges who oversaw the nation and helped to implement this new kingdom. A, a new king into the system. And for a moment it looked like everything was great. Now we've got this great new leader who's, who's supposedly a man of God who's not only going to, uh, to lead us and represent us, but he's going to make us more powerful. All the nations of the world will now fear us. They used to make fun of us because we were the only nation without a king. Now we got a king. Now they'll all be afraid of us. But what happens? Another period of rebellion. Things don't always go like we thought they would. Because all of us have this inward bent in us. We all have a sin nature. And we all secretly and quite often publicly desire to elevate ourselves as God. We want to be the master of our lives. We want to have the say so. We want to be in control. We want honor. We want glory. And there's this pattern of rebellion and, and God has to bring judgment but then God always brings a hope. He always brings restoration. So Saul is taken off the throne because of his rebellion and a new man named David is, is, is installed as king. David did many great things and led the nation of Israel to many great places. But he wasn't the exception to the rule. He wrestled with this rebellion, this sin nature inside of him like we all do. He decided that what, what was best is for the nation of Israel to have a temple to come, to be able to worship God at. God said, we'll build a temple, but I won't let you, David. Because you have too much blood on your hands. Because David made sure that the nation of Israel was protected. And he killed a lot of men and a lot of enemies in the process. And God said, we'll build a temple, but I won't let you touch it. There's too much blood on your hands. And then we see Solomon, David's son, come and, and reign as king. Through Solomon, the greatest, one of the greatest temples the world has ever known is built to honor and worship God. It looks like hope has finally come. It looks like restoration has finally come. But we see another cycle. We see rebellion again. And people rebel against God's plan. And, and you see men and nations elevate themselves and so immediately after solomon in 796 bc the nation of israel splits into two and you have what's called israel in the north and judah in the south and then you have a couple centuries of more and more kings and almost every one of them are as wicked as they come and there's a few spurts of revival where people are like, oh, we have to get back to God. We have to come back to His promises. He promised us a bright future. He promised us hope so that we could share hope with the nations. And you get these small periods of revival, but then another cycle of rebellion. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes and 
destroys and conquers northern Israel. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come and destroy the the southern kingdom of Judah. And all of a sudden now, you have this, what was supposed to be this great nation. A nation God created. God didn't pick a nation that was already in existence and say, these will be my people. God created this nation from the ground up. Such a bright future, but marked over and over and over with rebellion. And now you have this nation in captivity to the Babylonians. Wondering, what's next? Where was, where's this hope we were looking for? And we see this period of rebellion, but we see hope. The captivity was a part of God's judgment. When you look at the prophets, you have in the Old Testament, you have three divisions of prophets. You have, and many of those early prophets that are listed first, are just before or during the captivity from the Babylonians. And so they're proclaiming God's judgment is coming on us because of our rebellion. And then you have a group of prophets that um, were a part of the captivity. A a group of men who were um, trying to bring hope to a people who were enslaved because they were in the midst of God's judgment, but there was always hope. And late in the 6th century B.C., God leads His people back to their homeland so that they can begin rebuilding. And then you see another group of prophets raise up to call people to a new lifestyle so that they don't have to face judgment again. And, And over and over and over in the New Testament, we see this cycle of rebellion and then judgment, but always followed by restoration. And then we move into the New Testament And finally, the true restoration, the true hope arrives. So as the Old Testament is closing, the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. And the last chapters of Malachi are are looking forward. Looking ahead at, at that hope for restoration. God made a promise. We must hold on to the hope that His promise will come true. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where. But there's hope. And that's how the Old Testament ends. And then 400 years later, Christ is born. Given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now the new hope, the ultimate hope, is birth. The Old Testament is centered around what we call the Old Covenant. The covenant that God had with His people Israel. That I will pour my blessings into you, and as I do so, you're going to pour those blessings into the rest of the world. As I give you hope, as I give you truth, as I give you salvation and restoration, you extend those to the ends of the earth. But it didn't last long. And there were always these cycles of rebellion and judgment, but then restoration. And now the true and final hope arrive. And the New Testament introduces what we call the new covenant. That we now approach God. We have a relationship with Him. A covenantal relationship with Him. Built on a new system. Not on our deeds. Not on how well we can perform. And keep rules and rituals. But now our faith and our hope and restoration is built in to Jesus. And the four Gospels each give us a different perspective and account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. We move into Acts and we see how it went from a small group of people and exploded to the ends of the earth. We walk through the letters. We get a picture of what life was like for the early Christians. And what we realize really quickly is that we're not much different. They wrestled with these big questions. How do I make God ultimate 
Instead of following this same pattern of rebellion and elevating myself. How do, I, how do I live out this life in the midst of the Roman Empire that was very hostile and not friendly to Christians? How do I live in a hostile environment? And as we're looking at the first century Christians, we start realizing we're not much different. And as God was speaking His truth to His people back then, we see Him speak His truth to us as we read these words. And then God brings it all together and shows us how, though we have ultimate hope in Jesus, and though we've began the process of restoration, one day God will finish that process. One day God will finish it. And in Revelation, we get images of how it's finished for those who make God ultimate in their lives and for those who don't. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, but it is one big story. In the beginning, God. It's just Him. And He is the foundation of everything that was made. And it's supposed to be the foundation of our lives. But like all the men and women before, we follow into this same pattern of rebellion. And ultimately, it's an issue of idolatry. We don't want to honor God as God. We want to elevate ourselves to that place. We want to be ultimate. And we see this long drama of God's love and His patience for His people. And despite their rebellion and His warnings and judgment, He always brings restoration and He always brings hope. And our hope rests in God's final solution in the person of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, and this is where we're going to conclude I want you to open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1. If you've got one of the Bibles that were in the seat back in front of you, page 758. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to jump to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Verse 16, And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. I want us to go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Sound familiar? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The last two weeks, we've been focusing on the written Word. And if you want to know what the point of it is, what's... What's the focus? What, what is it all about? What does it point to? The written Word points us to the living Word. 
This is about Jesus. The whole thing. The whole thing. Even the parts that were written 1,500 years before he was born, the whole thing is about Jesus. Because Jesus was the living word before the written word was ever penned. In the beginning was the word. This whole thing points us to Jesus. Jesus, after dying and raising again from the dead, is talking to his followers before he sends them out to begin this new church. And he opens up the Old Testament and begins reading and says, this was always all about me. All of this points to me. Everything it said about me has come true. I have fulfilled every bit of it. When Jesus first showed up on the scene, he told people, I didn't come to abolish the law in the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. This is about Jesus. And if you read this and you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point. If you read it and you see history and you don't see the face of Christ, you have missed the whole point. Jesus is the greater Adam. It was through Adam's seed that came death and destruction and sin. But it's through Jesus that we receive victory and restoration and life. Jesus is the greater Abraham. Who left his homeland to follow God. To start a new nation. Jesus left heaven to come here to start an eternal nation of God's people. Jesus is the greater Joseph who sat at the right hand of Pharaoh to protect his people. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father for us. Jesus is the greater Moses who led people God's people out of physical slavery. Jesus has led us out of spiritual slavery to our our own idolatrous hearts. Jesus is the greater King David who defeated many enemies and a great giant. Jesus has defeated the giants of sin, death, Satan, and destruction. Jesus is a greater Ezra who returned back out of captivity to rebuild the temple so God's people could worship again. Jesus rebuilt his body after it was destroyed so that we could worship again. Jesus is a greater law. The law served to expose our sin and our inability to live up to God's holy standard. But Jesus has removed sin and given us His holiness, His righteousness. Jesus is the greater temple. It's through the temple that we could approach God. But now we approach God with full confidence through Him. Jesus is the greater lamb who was sacrificed to provide a temporary solution for sin. Jesus was sacrificed to give us ultimate freedom and forgiveness of sin. If you read any part of this and you don't see Jesus, you've missed the point. It's a story of our rebellion and God's restoration of us. And everything points to Jesus. All of the systems, all of the rules, all of the people in the Old Testament were just a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately do for us. And in the New Testament, we find hope. We see a better picture of Jesus and then we see a group of believers like us who wrestle with the same issues we wrestle with. Always holding on to a hope That one day in the end, 
God will make everything right. And that God will put a final stamp on this battle that we have with sin when He declares complete and ultimate victory. When we approach this We look through it with the eyes of the cross, through the lenses of the cross. The cross is the center of everything in here. And the whole thing points to Jesus. Because in the beginning, the living word was before the written word. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you this morning. Father, I ask that you would help us to see your word. Jesus, ultimately, that when we approach the Bible, we would see you. God, that we would understand that the whole thing is one great story of our fall and your restoration plan for us. And that you put a name and a face to that rescue plan and your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that despite all the events and people in the Old Testament who fell short, you were perfect. That you bring ultimate hope and ultimate restoration to us. God, we cry out and ask that you would help us to break this pattern of idolatry that that we would grow and learn to make you ultimate in our lives.